Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Good morning. Uh, We're going to be reading out of Jonah again, uh, page 774, if you're uh, interested in following along in your pew Bible. Uh, starting at uh, verse 17, chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out of the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Shoal I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in on me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought, me, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Father, we thank you again for your word, and um, thank you that this unusual story um, in the Old Testament um, has so much um, importance and significance um, to how we understand our own hearts um, and how we understand ultimately your heart. And so we thank you uh, for what you reveal to us um, about yourself here. Um, and I pray specifically, specifically today, what, what it is that you are revealing to us about who you are um, in, this, in this prayer, um, that, Lord, it would, it would encourage us, um, it, would, it would woo us back in for those who may feel far away, um, that it would woo us, that it would woo those in maybe for the first time um, who, have, who have never trusted in you, um, and Lord, that it would be something truly gripping for us to recognize um, what it is that you are saying in this text. We love you, Father. We need your help um, to, to, to know what it is that you're saying. Um, we need the, the, the help of your spirit. And so, Lord, we know that your spirit dwells within us already just by nature of who we are as the church. Your spirit dwells within us. And so we don't we don't invite your spirit into this place. Uh, we acknowledge the spirit in this place. And so may we invite ourselves to get out of our own way and to get out of the way of what the spirit wants to do in us. And may we acknowledge that the spirit wants to do something mighty within us this morning. We love you and uh, we thank you for the time that we have today um, in worshiping you through song, through scripture, through the breaking of bread, through the fellowship that we have with one another here. May you be glorified in all that we do. In your name, amen. Don't sit down just yet. 
I'm a human. I gotta go to the bathroom. You guys need to, you guys need to turn around and shake each other's hands, okay? I'm gonna mute it. All right. Hey, thank you for accommodating me and, wel- and for welcoming one another. Yeah, you're welcome. I would have done that before. I figured if there was a time I was gonna do that, it was gonna be then. So I hate to, to, to break between the reading of scripture and then just diving straight into scripture. Uh, but as we say each week, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you need one. Um, and if you're like, well, I don't have one, well, we've provided one for you in the seat in front of you. Um, hey, one of the really sweet and beautiful ways that we have um, people serving our church um, is normally around 9.30, there's a bunch of kids here, and I, and I will tell them at any given time, hey, ask them, would you make sure that every chair has a Bible? Some of, them, some of yours may not have it, um, which is actually kind of a good thing because that means that someone probably took it with them. Um, and they did not steal it, we invite you, if you don't have a Bible, please take that one in front of you. It's a gift to you. Um, and so thank you to, I think it was Tessa and Vivi this morning who made sure there was a Bible in every chair. So um, don't steal their blessing um, by not opening the word um, and don't steal the blessing that God wants to give to you by not opening your word. And so page 774, we're in Jonah chapter two. And if you've been with us, what we have established so far, I'm gonna say this every week that we're in the story of Jonah, what we've established from our look at the book of Jonah is, is a really key, important truth, that it is not ultimately a story about a fish. Are you shocked? It's not a story about a fish. It's not ultimately a story about a prophet. It's not ultimately a story about the sea, but it is ultimately a story about God. Jonah is a story about God. It's a story that helps get us 
um, get our eyes on God. Um, in, in one way, it's a fish story about God. In another way, it's not a fish story about God. If, if you're from the South, you know what that means. Like a fish story is normally an exaggeration. This is no exaggeration about who God is. And, uh, and this God, what we learn about this God is that he is a God who is compassionate and who pursues us and who is merciful to us, a God, if you read these pages, a God who at nearly every turn in this book is offering a way of salvation and making a way of salvation. So we saw that a little bit last week and we're gonna get into this. And so initially we see that this is true, that God is a saving, compassionate, merciful, pursuing God. Initially and ultimately we see that this is true because God has his sight set on the Ninevites. Um, he has his sight sets on a wicked group of people. Um, and so what else could you possibly explain um, for a holy God to save a wicked people other than it being a merciful, compassionate act of, of God's grace? And so we'll get to them more next week. We're gonna get to the Ninevites more next week. But then we saw last week that even the sailors, even the sailors are recipients of God's pursuit. So whether their response to God by the end of the chapter is genuine or not, we, we, don't, we, we aren't really sure, but they do come in contact, nonetheless, the, the sailors do come in contact with the mercy of God in a real and personal way. God is pursuing them. And, and they even make a cry to God. Again, we, whether, we know, whether it's genuine, we don't know. And so today in chapter two, we see that God pursues and saves not only the lost and the wicked, so it would be one thing to say God pursues lost people, God saves wicked people, but guess what? God pursues you. If you are his child, God has, God is not done pursuing you. Um, he does not quit pursuing you. And so, if, you know, if you're like, if you've been in a relationship for a long time, hey, hey men, can I like, can I get an amen here? Like, you're not pursuing that girl as hard as you were at the very beginning, are you? And if you are, it takes a lot of intentionality, Right? And I'm not even gonna ask the ladies if what I'm saying is true because I don't want you to feel bad. What I'm saying is, is that God continues to pursue us fully the longer we follow him. He never stops in his pursuit of us. And so, ladies, God is not like your husband. And I'm not trying to throw your husband under the bus. I'm trying to just point you to Jesus is better. Men, Jesus is, is better than your girl. He's, he's better than her. She's great, but Jesus is better. He never stops pursuing. And so Jonah's journey down that began in chapter one hits literal rock bottom here in chapter two, verse six, where it says that he hits the roots of the mountains. Remember last week we said in chapter one, it keeps saying Jonah went down, went down, went down, and he never stops going down until he gets to the bottom of the ocean. And so this chapter, chapter two, may give us more insight into the book's intended theme than any other spot in the whole book. Um, and so I want us to see something here before we really dive into the text. Get your eyes on, on the book. And I just want you to see something that is significant and intentional. And it's a shift that takes place from the previous chapter to this chapter and from this chapter to the next. Do you see it? So, so if you're familiar with literature and like terminology of literature, um, then, then what's happening here and the fancy way to say it is that this book shifts from prose to poetry back to prose. 
So you have like this, this prose writing style where it's, it's more of like a, like, a, like a natural flow. So chapters one, three, and four just kind of this natural um, conversational flow of here are some, a record of things that have happened. And then chapter two shifts to like this poetic, rhythmic form of writing, much like the Psalms, right? In fact, this is very much a psalm smack dab in the middle of the book of Jonah. It just kind of sh- makes a huge shift from, from this prose style of writing to this poetic form of, of, of the prophet crying out, calling out, and giving thanksgiving to God. And so this, here's the deal, y'all. We have to see this before we even get into the text, that this is a significant and a deliberate shift. So, so the, the, the scriptures... The scriptures are divine. We, we, we believe that. We believe this is a God-breathed word of God. But there's also a human element to it. Humans wrote it, amen? We, we agree with that. There was, there was a man who wrote this book and each person who writes, writes kind of have their own personality. And so Jonah's personality or whoever wrote this, this story, there, there's something being said about what they want to communicate with us. And so it's a significant and a deliberate shift happening inside of this book. And here's the deal. It's meant to draw us more deeply into the story, no pun intended. It's meant to draw us more deeply Get it? Into this story, not only from a literary standpoint. So if some of you are like geeking out already, you're like, he's, he's talking about prose and poetry, that's awesome. No, it's not just a literary standpoint that wants us to be drawn into, it's a spiritual reality. And so let's look at verses 117. So in the Hebrew Bible, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so of course I just read this from somebody else and then I read, made sure it was accurate by reading a lot of people who are Hebrew scholars. In the Hebrew scriptures, um, verse 17 of chapter one is actually part of chapter two. Um, these chapter numbers kind of came in later um, as, as, as different translations came into be. Um, and chapter se- or verse 17 of chapter one actually belongs with verse two. So that's why we're kind of looking at that. So let's read that together. It says, and the Lord appointed or had appointed well beforehand a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So it's Jonah's prayer here, like we ended, this is how we ended last week, it's just a continuation. It is Jonah's prayer here that defines and describes that the great fish is not an instrument of punishment. Many of us may have thought that growing up, that the, that the fish was like kind of the, the culprit here. The fish was kind of the, the one to come in and, and we didn't really know the story. And so we just thought like, wow, a dude got eaten by a fish. Like that really stinks, right? No, the fish, if we read and we understand It is Jonah's prayer, and it defines the great fish not as an instrument of punishment, but an instrument of preservation, an instrument of salvation, that God had appointed a fish to save Jonah from his plight. That that if it were not for the fish, Jonah, as he says more in his prayer, would have died. Tony Marita, he's a pastor, he says that the fish is not Jonah's punishment. The fish is Jonah's salvation, education, and transportation. 
And so the fish saves him, the fish teaches him something, and the fish also gets him where he needs to go. Pretty cool, huh? So this is where God, this is how God wanted to save Jonah. And so this is not a prayer for rescue. This is just some context of the prayer that, to be honest with you, I was talking to a neighbor last night, we were talking about Jonah. Um, I didn't understand before I really started studying this that like, Jonah's not, this is not a, a prayer for help. Jonah has received help. Jonah's already experienced the help. And so he's not, he's not, um, he's not miserable. I mean, he's probably miserable, but this, this prayer of, 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 of what seems like angst and stress is not angst and stress in the fish. It would have been a stressful time, but what Jonah's praying is he's reflecting back on his time in the bottom of the sea. And if we read that, we'll see that. And so this is not a prayer for rescue. This is not a, a psalm of rescue or a prayer of rescue, but it's a prayer of thanksgiving. We see that? That Jonah's prayer here is a prayer not of rescue, but a prayer of thanksgiving. In fact, there is not one petition made from Jonah to God in this entire prayer. It is a prayer of worship. It is a prayer that Jonah worships the Lord. You see, as, as much of a major player and a miracle that the, that the fish is in this story, we are intended to be moved and captivated by something much more miraculous than a man-eating fish. The miracle here, church family, is not a man-eating fish. It's a, it's, it's a miracle. We don't wanna say that's not a miracle because that's a miracle that a dude could get swallowed and spit up where, spit up where he needs to go. We're gonna acknowledge that as a miracle, but that's not the, the height of where our minds and our hearts should go and wondering at the miracle here in the book. The miracle here is not a man-eating fish, but a man-saving God. That's the miracle, y'all. And that's the miracle for us, that, that we have a God who would save us. And so let's talk about this a little bit. We're invited in this story to marvel at this. The writer is saying, look at this and set your eyes on this. The, the fish takes up like two verses of the whole book. So surely we gotta be seeing something bigger here, right? Go to Ephesians chapter two, verses one through seven. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through seven. You're like, what are we doing here? This is what Ephesians two, one through seven says. We're gonna read it, the whole thing. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What are the next two words, somebody? Let's, maybe I shouldn't say somebody. What are the next two words, everybody? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Family, this is the miracle that we are intended to see. Paul is explaining in Ephesians a miracle. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Uh, I, I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but, but I'm, a, I'm a huge Hebrew scholar. I'm a huge Greek scholar when it comes to the word dead because the word in Greek for dead is dead. Brilliant, right? By the way, I'm not a Greek scholar. Dead, dead, like not, you know, like not, not like Monty Python, like I'm only halfway dead, right? Like, no, he's, he's all the way dead. And, and, and Paul is trying to paint this picture of us, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins until a miraculous intervention happened in our hearts, that God woke us up, that God resurrected us and made us alive together with him. This is the miracle that we are called to see. Not about a man-eating fish, but about a God-saving man, uh, a man-saving God, that God would save us. This is a miracle. You know the similarities. I I, I don't know. You know all the all the the literary things, but the similarities between Jonah's psalm of salvation here and Paul's exclamation of sal, explanation of salvation in us. The, the similarities are striking. In fact, it's, it's even the same number of verses, that, that section 2, 1 through 10 in Ephesians. And then you've got the Jonah's prayer 2, 1 through 10 in Jonah. There's, there's something deep going on here. Let's read verses 1 through 7. Then Jonah, we're going to read, read those first two verses again. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up on me forever. Yet, but God brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So Jonah is explaining his experience in the ocean. He's explaining his, his experience in the sea and his salvation was the fish. And so the, all this tension that we feel here is not, is not his experience inside the fish, it was his experience inside the water until the fish came and saved him. And so we see the mercy of God. We see the mercy of God in that when Jonah prays, God hears. Don't miss this, church family. So we are to gaze at the miracle of a, of a, of a man saving God. What about the miracle of a man hearing God? A, a God who, who hears the cries of his people. And so Jonah cries out, 
and this miracle that God hears him happens. And we cannot miss this. You know, last week we, we talked about a God who pursues us. And I got in a conversation afterwards with, with one of our guys. And we were talking about this just from like a real basic level, a practical level. And, 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 and I asked him, I said, you, you know, you know what's, what is hard that, that I know that those of you who are parents and, and maybe, maybe, maybe you're a spouse, maybe you're just a friend, something that's challenging and difficult is pursuing someone that either doesn't want to be pursued or will not be pursued back. We probably all know how this feels. Like, surely all of you went through seventh grade a time or two, right? Like, think about that girl. Think about that, that boy you were chasing. One of the most painful things is pursuing someone who will not pursue you back or doesn't pursue you. Hey, parents, one of the most painful things in your life I'm starting to see just a glimmer of it. And by the way, I was actually the, the culprit back in college. I told, the, I told Ted, we were talking last week, man, when I was in college, like, I, I just didn't call my mama. I, did, I never called her. And, and like, I don't, I don't say that, like, it was painful. I know that. But one of the most painful things is to pursue someone and to not be pursued back or to, or to see from them that they don't want to be pursued. And so we've experienced this, whether that be as a parent, spouse, or a friend. Pursuit can be an emotionally draining thing, especially when it's just one-sided. And so personally, for me as a parent, I've, I've experienced this. I've experienced the challenge of, of this day in and day out of trying to pursue the heart of my children when it seems like I'm, I'm underappreciated. And so, you know, I, the kids wake up and I'm looking for snuggles and I'm like pursuing my baby's heart, you know? It was like, I love you. And then they look up at me and say, why haven't you got me breakfast yet? Like, you just feel deflated. And I, I remember around the time Gabe, um, he's not in here, he's in, he's in class, our, our seven, he's seven. Uh, I remember around the time when Gabe was, was able to be spoken to and then to respond, you know? For the first couple of years, you're just talking, it's, it's all just, poor, 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 poor. And then finally they get to a place where you're like, okay, you can start talking back to me a little bit. And then you realize, oh, I don't want them to talk back to me. Um, but I remember when Gabe was, was able to be spoken to and respond, and I had this deeply personal moment with him. I had this, this moment I've been waiting for. My, he's my, you know, our first son. He's like, man, my boy. The deeply personal moment, I looked at him, I said, I love you, Gabe. And he looked back and he said, oh. <laughs> really? Oh, as cute as it is, as cute as it was at the time, we've all been in this place where we have pursued someone or something. And the temptation in these moments when we're not pursued back is what? Somebody say something. To, to withdraw, to just kind of check out. That's, that's our tendency. And I'm not just talking about, you know, you chasing your seventh grade crush. I'm talking about someone that you actually deeply love. Like I've, I have heard from, from parents who have older children who, who are not pursuing them, that, that one of the hardest things to do is to keep pursuing that kid's heart, even when it's not reciprocated. And by the way, some of you in here are the kid. You know, some of you have a parent who, who is pursuing you and pursuing you and there's not much pursuit back and they're exhausted. And then you feel that with your children, that you're pursuing and pursuing, pursuing and and it's easy to withdraw, it hurts, and it's painful to pursue someone who will not reciprocate. Or as in Jonah's case, he didn't only not reciprocate, he blatantly ran away. Remember last week, the map that we showed of Tarshish? 
Yet what we see from God time and time again is not to withdraw in his pursuit of us. What we see from a holy God who our world and our culture wants to, wants to, wants to reject him because how could, a, how could a loving God be so wrathful? Man, how could a holy God be so merciful? How could a, how could a loving God extend mercy and grace to people who just won't reciprocate the pursuit but who blatantly run to Tarshish and says, no. And so it's one thing for God to respond to our adoration, right? I mean, hey, it's easy for us as parents to reciprocate the love when we have our children's uh, uh, respect and adoration. But it's a whole other thing for God to respond to us in our desperation, even when it is self-inflicted desperation. He says, Jonah acknowledges that. He, he does say, God, you're the one who, who cast me away. You're the one who threw me into the sea. But, but Jonah knows. That doesn't negate the fact that Jonah has made a series of decisions that has put him in this place. And so this concept of, this is, guys, this is something I want us to get, and we're gonna preach on it a lot, and we have preached on it in the past. This concept of God hearing and responding is not a New Testament thing. It's not even new with Jonah. This echoes what happens in Exodus chapter two. We're gonna go there. Exodus two, it's just three verses. Look at what Exodus 2, 23 through 25 says. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Man, there is so much in that. How might we expect for God to respond to us in moments like this? How might, how might our human limitation assume that God would respond to us in a moment of running and fleeing? A holy God hearing the desperate cries of a sinful people? No, Jonah says in verse two, look, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Hey, Sheol had a very specific meaning and weight to the Jewish people. And so today, we, we refer to Sheol as hell. We just throw that word around, you know, whether it's just like in our, in our language, but, but even like in the church, we, 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 we often use hell as a tool to scare people, like you need to make a decision to follow Jesus. You don't want to burn in hell and have bugs on you all your life, do you? Like we use hell to, to scare people into following Jesus using these, these fear tactics of, of these, these things that I've mentioned. And, and make no mistake, it is, it is our position here, and we believe it's the position of Scripture, that hell is a real place. It is. 
It's a real place, and there are certainly reasons to, to not spend eternity there. And hell can be and should be a motivating factor in trusting in Christ. But Sheol would have not been understood at all in, in the Jewish mind. It would not have been understood at all if not primarily and most significantly understood as a place absent of the presence of God. Did you catch that? So for us, we don't want to go to hell because we're scared. For them, they didn't want to go to hell because God wasn't there. And, and I would just say that so many of us could like take or leave the presence of God. I mean, if we're, if we're just really honest with ourselves, like we've got Instagram and TikTok and we've got all our, our fake community there, you know, where we feel just so at home. And we could just take or leave the presence of God and, and never do anything. But when, when, when Jonah feels the weight of Sheol, what he feels the weight of is, is, is God's not here. This is a message for us as individuals, but also as a church, that the most important thing, listen to this. If you don't hear anything else I say today, please listen to this. That the most important thing in the world and even in our eternity is the presence of God. That's it. So in our personal lives, hey, in our worship, you know, you can worship without the presence of God. You know, you worship, by the way, you know that everyone worships, right? Like even the atheists, people who don't believe in God, you're, you're worshipers because God created you and created you to worship. And so if, if you don't worship God, your heart's gonna worship something else. And so whether it's our worship, whether it's our evangelism, whether it's our work, those things are nothing without the presence of God. So Jonah had run so far and so fast from God that though he could not escape God's presence and his awareness, he had so distanced himself that he sensed a self-inflicted spiritual isolation, that he was in Sheol, that he needed the presence of God. And so I just wanna ask it like this. When you are distant from God, and I would just say, like, if I asked for a show of hands, you would at least feel like you're distanced from God. And if you, if, if you have no fellowship with God and you don't feel convicted about that, we're going to just ask that the Spirit would do that. If, if you don't have the fellowship with the Father and you, and you know that and it, doesn't, and it doesn't bother you and you don't feel uneasy, we're not going to guilt you or shame you. We're going to say that God is merciful and will supply you with the desire for the presence of God. We're going to invite you into that. And so when you're distanced from God, even by your own doing, how is it that you expect to be met by God in those moments? Do you, th do, you, do you think like, oh gosh, I'm in trouble, I gotta run away from dad? <laughs> My kids feel that way a lot. Oh, oh gosh, I messed up, I gotta run away from dad. Or do you believe the message that Jonah is saying here is that when you are desperate and you, when you are in Sheol, the absence of, of God, do you say, I gotta run to him? Do you run away from him in your time of need or do you run to him? It seems that in the scriptures, many of God's greatest moments of deliverance come in our greatest moment of desperation. So run to him. Let's read verses eight through 10. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the land. So Jonah learned something profoundly important at the bottom of the sea. So remember, the whale is Jonah's uh, how do we say that? How do we say that, Boonstra? You're, you're in my notes. Jonah is, or the fish is Jonah's salvation, his education, and his transportation. And so what does Jonah learn? What, is, what does he get educated, edumacated, if some of you will? My great-grandma would say that. How does Jonah get edumacated? Jonah gets, Jonah learns something real simple. Don't bow down to idols, Worship the God, true God alone. Worship God alone. Jonah has learned that his idols, listen to this. Jonah has learned that his idols will leave him at the bottom of the sea, but only God will be there to rescue him. Guess what? Jonah's idols took him to the bottom of the sea. So we talked a little bit last week, kind of what some of those idols might have been. One of those may have just been a a greater love for his, his people and his country and their future than, than God. That may be one of them. We don't know what else they were. Maybe it was, I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, look where it got him. And so he's learned that the idols will leave him at the bottom of the sea, but only God will be there to rescue him. And so what Jonah learns here is a foundational contrast that is further developed in Psalm 16. If you've, if you've been around Grace Harbor for very long, um, you know how often I refer to this chapter, Psalm 16, um, and how important of a psalm I believe it to be for the Christian life. And so there, this is where we see that contrast. If you wanna go to Psalm 16, that's great. We're gonna be at verse four and verse 11. There's a very striking and provocative contrast there. 16.4 says this, and it echoes what Jonah says, or Jonah echoes what it says. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. He doesn't use the word add. He doesn't use the word grow. He uses the word multiplication. They will, they will multiply exponentially. Like if you follow something other than God, like you're not just gonna have one more problem in your life. Your problems will multiply. And it's not like problems in the world. It's not like God's punishing you, you know, every bad thing that comes on you. I, we don't believe that's like God throwing fire at you or anything like that, but you will feel an unsettlement. But look at the contrast. Look what verse 11 of 16 says. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And so again, this is a significant understanding of idolatry and worship of the one true God. He, Jonah says in verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope in steadfast love because your idols won't love you back. They'll take you to the bottom of the ocean, they'll put on their scuba gear and they'll go back up and go find somebody else. They will abandon you there. This chapter is a psalm buried right in the middle of the book of Jonah. And more than anything, again, is a psalm of salvation. And so not only does this chapter give us unique insight into the theme of Jonah, but some people would say it gives us, an, it gives us insight into the theme of the whole Bible in one verse. If the Bible could be summed up in one verse, 
verse 9b, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's a theme of the Bible right there. Salvation is not a New Testament thing. Salvation's, you know, salvation wasn't like plan B to get, to, to get God's people out of the mess. Jesus was the plan before the foundation of the world to come and save us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Jonah ultimately learns what alone is able to save, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so three questions. How do we obtain this great salvation? How do we obtain this great salvation? Not that salvation is a list of do's and don'ts. Salvation is by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. So salvation is not a list of do's and don'ts that we do to save ourselves, but there are three clear indicators of what characterizes a turning of the life towards God in Jonah chapter two. It's John Calvin, I believe, that says that that, uh, repentance is a a turning of the life towards God. And so when we talk about repentance, that's what definition we're gonna use. Three indicators of what characterizes a turning of the life towards God in Jonah two. So we're gonna break them down in three simple phrases that Jonah has shown us in this section. First is this, if you need salvation, whether for the first time to turn your life for regeneration or whether you are far from him, what do we do to get back into the presence of God? I'm giving you, serving them up on a plate. The first thing that we see from Jonah is to acknowledge your desperation. You see him do that in verses one through seven, right? He's acknowledging that life was about, like things were about to take him over. So the first thing is to acknowledge your desperation. Secondly, acknowledge and forsake your idols. Acknowledge and forsake your idols. You hear that and you think, well, that doesn't pertain to me because I don't have bronze statues waiting for me in the living room when I get home, right? Like you're like, I'm good. I'm good. I, I've, I've officially forsaken my idols. But what we likely have is something that we have put in the place of God. And that's the most simple definition of idolatry. Last week, we would define rebellion simply to kind of, to make sure that none of us could get off the hook. We think rebellion and we think wicked people. We think Ninevites. We think those people, those people. But no, rebellion is simply saying no to God. Idolatry, simply defined, is any good thing. It could be a good thing or a bad thing that has taken the place of the better savior. What is that for you? Is it approval? Is it success? It all costs in your work? Is it, is it getting something in some way? Is, is there something that has taken the place of God? And it can even be a good thing. You, you hear that, right? Like this could be part of it. Maybe you're coming to church because it's just like, you know, I'm just, I'm just I, I wanna be a good person. No, salvation is not through church attendance. Salvation is by faith alone and uh, Christ alone by grace alone. And so an idol is any good thing that's taking place of a better savior. And, and to remember, your idol won't love you back and will leave you there at the bottom of the ocean. So we're acknowledging our desperation. We're acknowledging and forsaking our idols. And then finally, what Jonah does is he acknowledges his savior. Acknowledge your savior. Success, fame, approval, getting what I want at all costs will not save me. In fact, Psalm 16 says, those who chase after another God, your sorrows will multiply. 
There's only one way to peace with God, and that is through Jesus and acknowledging who our Savior is. Let's pray. Father, I, I do just pray this morning that if, if your spirit, if your spirit is, is in any way speaking to us, whether that be in maybe just acknowledging our, our desperation in life, that I can't do this anymore, I can't do this by myself, and there's only one person who can, and that's you, if your spirit is, is speaking to us on the idols that need to be forsaken so that we can experience the fullness of joy, or if, or if there's just a, an acknowledgement of, of who our Savior is, would you, by your spirit, waken our hearts up? Would you help us to worship you because of who you are and what you've done, not because of who we are? And so, Lord, help us even now to worship you in a way that, that glorifies you. Worship, worship you in a way that, that helps us to be in the presence of you because we know that is the most significant and important thing, that we would be in your presence. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.